for more information on my uh, courses, um, go to my website at www.mskmr.com. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Renner. Thank you for joining me on this lecture on shoulder instability and labral tears. Now, the glenoid labrum is a triangular fibrocartilage uh, structure that surrounds the uh, glenoid, the bony glenoid. And it has a couple of functions. Uh, its main function, I believe, is to deepen the convexity of the glenoid to decrease the incidence of uh, glenohumeral uh, dislocation. Uh, as you know, the shoulder joint is the most likely joint to be uh, dislocated um, traumatically. Now the labrum also provides anchoring uh, for the biceps tendon and the glenohumeral uh, ligaments. Now the main reason that the um, shoulder joint, the glenohumeral joint, is the most common joint to dislocate is because we have the very large surface area of the humor, humeral head uh, in contact with the relatively small surface area of the glenoid. In fact, only about a third of the joint surface of the humeral head is in contact with the glenoid at any one time. So this joint is very unstable. The uh, glenoid deepens that convexity by uh, up to uh, 50% and may also introduce a vacuum phenomena to help uh, hold the shoulder uh, in place. So uh, it definitely contributes to the stability uh, of the uh, glenoid. Now remember that on both sides of the surfaces of both the humeral head and the um, glenoid fossa, we have highland uh, cartilage, that is articular cartilage. And articular cartilage on articular cartilage is extremely slick. It is slicker than ice rolling on ice. That is the coefficient of friction of the articular cartilage on articular cartilage is less than ice on ice. So it's extremely smooth. That's why when we're uh, 20 years old we can run out the uh, door and uh, jog five miles and feel great. But then when we're 50 years old, we go and uh, jog five miles, our knee hurts. That's because of the loss of articular cartilage, and uh, we'll talk about that in great detail later. All right, so we, we have these two surfaces, uh, the large humeral head um, contacting the small uh, glenoid labrum. Now, when the shoulder is dislocated, that's when we develop uh, labral tears. So labral tears are caused by acute uh, glenohumeral dislocation. Uh, by far and away, the most common dislocation is an acute anterior dislocation. And when you have young athletes that sustain an acute anterior dislocation, you have about an 80% uh, incidence of uh, that patient developing an acute anterior inferior labral tear. So acute anterior shoulder dislocation, 80% uh, chance of anterior inferior labral tear. Now there's a very high incidence uh, with uh, a, a um, acute anterior dislocation of a Hill Sachs lesion. What happens is the very high posterior lateral portion of the humeral head bangs into the anterior inferior labrum. And at this collision, there's either a contusion of the very high 
uh, superior posterior lateral portion of the humeral head or a, uh, and if it's a contusion we call that uh, Hill's X equivalent or there's an impaction fracture and if it's an impaction fracture we call it a Hill Sachs fracture so with the uh, acute shoulder dislocation there's nearly a hundred percent incidence of a Hill Sachs lesion either at uh, uh, if we do uh, MR uh, or if we do uh, arthroscopy now the Hill Sachs lesions uh, have a variable time where they'll they last Frequently, contusions will last from three uh, to uh, six months. Impaction fracture, of course, will, will last for a uh, uh, basically indefinite. All right, we're going to do an MR scan on our young athlete. He's had an acute uh, anterior uh, shoulder uh, dislocation uh, with uh, pain. Uh, what is the best plane to find? the labral tear. About 80% of patients with an acute anterior dislocation, young athletes will have an anterior inferior labral tear. The best plane to look at that is on the axial plane. And I have a rule. I have a rule to help uh, increase the accuracy of um, diagnosing uh, labral tears. The problem with MR is that it's been highly uh, criticized by orthopedic surgeons because when they've compared MR to arthroscopy, some studies have shown that uh, MR is about approximately 20% accurate at uh, finding labral tears, uh, less than flipping a coin. So I'm going to give you some rules to take you from about 20% accuracy to about 95% accuracy. All right. Now the first rule for reading labral tears is that we're going to start in the axial projection and we're going to start at the mid portion of the humeral head, about halfway down, the 3 o'clock position of the humeral head. And as we do, we look, at the, we look at the anterior and the posterior labrum on our axial view. And on our axial view, the anterior labrum should be as big as or bigger than the posterior labrum. It should be as dark as or darker than the posterior labrum in signal um, and there should be no lines to the posterior labrum so that's going to be our first rule our first rule is that we're going to start at the mid portion of the humeral head on axial plane we're going to scan inferiorly as we do we're going to look at that labrum and the anterior labrum should be as big as or bigger in the posterior labrum it should be dark as or darker in the posterior labrum and there should be no lines to that posterior labrum that's our first rule. Any violation of that rule suggests a labral tear. Now as we look at that um, axial image of the uh, labrum, uh, recall we're looking at that anterior inferior uh, labrum for a labral tear. The anterior inferior labrum has a multitude of shapes. Okay, Most commonly, in about 45% of the times, it's triangular but it's rounded at about 19%, cleaved in about 15%, notched in about 8%, flat in about 7%, and the hooker is that uh, in about 6% it can be absent. And that makes it difficult, uh, uh, more difficult for us to read. Now, why is the radiologist so inaccurate in diagnosing uh, labral tears? Well, the reason is because there's a, a whole lot of normal variants uh, in the shoulder. Uh, but these normal variants are in the uh, anterior superior portion of the shoulder. 
between the 12 o'clock and the 3 o'clock position. In fact, if we look at the labrum on uh, look at the labrum on coronal view, we'll see that about um, thirty percent of individuals um, will see a, a little recess between the labrum and the um, glenoid. All right, normally. The labrum and the biceps tendon really can't be separated when you're looking at the labrum on the uh, coronal view. Uh, but that space between the labrum and the glenoid, uh, in about 30% of, of individuals, there is no space. The labrum is tightly adhered to the glenoid, and that's called a type 1 uh, biceps labral complex. But in the other 70% of individuals, there's a little recess between the labrum and the uh, superior uh, glenoid, and that's called the uh, biceps labral uh, sulcus, or the uh, sublabral recess. They're the same thing. The sublabral recess is also the uh, biceps labral sulcus. That's a normal variant. It occurs in about 70% of the individuals. The way we can tell that that's normal is because it's smooth and it points towards the patient's head. Uh, it's uh, not towards where the patient's shoulder would be. So we're going to use that as criteria for a normal sublabral recess, that it's smooth in nature and it points towards the patient's head, not towards the uh, patient's shoulder. That's the uh, sublabral recess. Uh, that normal recess ring call is present in about 70% of individuals. Now there's also another uh, variant, the sublabral foramen, which is really just a hole uh, between the uh, superior labrum and the um, and the uh, uh, glenoid, and uh, that's present in about eight to fifteen percent of individuals. All right, we can see that both in the axial plane and uh, in the uh, coronal plane. But recall that's between the twelve twelve o'clock and the three o'clock position. So. Um, in the third, uh, in the third uh, normal variant that's very common is the so-called Buford complex. The Buford complex is congenital absence of the anterior superior labrum and thickening of the MGHL. Okay, uh, but in all these normal variants, all these normal variants occur between the 12 o'clock and the three o'clock position of the humeral head. So we're gonna, uh, that brings us to our next rule. Our next rule is that if there's any abnormal signal between the 12 o'clock and the three o'clock position of the humeral head, we're going to ignore it because statistically that's gonna be much more likely to be a normal variant than it is to be a labral tear. Now there's one other finding that helps us uh, with uh, determining whether there's a normal variant and that is called the glenoid notch. That's a notch uh, that's present in the uh, anterior superior glenoid and uh, it's present in about 15% of uh, shoulders. You'll see an exaggerated notch. There's always a little indentation at that anterior superior uh, humeral uh, head but uh, in about 15% of of patients there's more of a well-defined notch. When you have, uh, when the patients have a notch, they have a much higher incidence of 
uh, normal variance compared to those patients with just an oval glenoid. The patients with a notched glenoid, about 15% of patients, uh, uh, have an approximate 23% incidence of Buford complex, about a 15% incidence of sublabial foramen, and about a 30% of a very diminutive uh, labrum versus an ovoid glenoid, uh, which occurs in about 85% of patients, the Buford complex is somewhere around 4%, uh, sublabral foramen somewhere around uh, 11%, and a diminutive uh, labrum is somewhere around 9%. So that notched glenoid is a clue that you have these normal uh, variants. Now, when we're looking at the labrum in that axial plane, there's two types of configurations. Okay, we have the type A labrum uh, on the axial plane where the glenoid, the glenoid um, articular uh, cartilage uh, just melts into the glenoid labrum. So that there's just continuous on that axial plane. All right, now remember on that axial plane, we can also see the so-called labroligamentous complex. Really, the labroligamentous complex is really just the scapular periosteum, the scapular periosteum. But the scapular periosteum has an important function in that it holds the labrum in place. So on that axial view, looking at the labrum, we have a type one, uh, type A labrum where the labrum just melts, the glenoid labrum just melts into the articular cartilage. All right, that's the type uh, A labrum. And the type B labrum the labrum is separated from the glenoid cartilage by a little uh, sulcus, okay? A little sulcus. So there's a separation of the labrum from the glenoid. Now, when that glenoid articular cartilage, which on T1 weighted image is a little bit brighter, is a little bit brighter, um, when that glenoid articular cartilage comes underneath the labrum, it can look like there's a labral tear. And, uh, uh, I call that the uh, labral undercutting sign, okay? And the good news is you have a control. You can look at the other side of the labrum, and you'll see that you'll have that kind of intermediate or whitish signal extend partially under the labrum on one, on the uh, anterior uh, labrum, and then you look at the posterior labrum, it's also present. So that's a normal variant, that the labral under uh, uh, undercutting uh, sign. Now, when we look... When we look at the uh, labrum um, in the uh, coronal view, uh, when we look at the labrum, we use a clock surface to describe labral tears, all right? And the coracoid, the coracoid is a very important structure because the coracoid is the anterior portion of the uh, shoulder. So when someone hands me a stack of films or passes a disc to me and starts talking to me about a case, as I pan through and start looking through the images, I look for that coracoid because that orients me where's anterior. All right, now 12 o'clock is always superior and 6 o'clock is always inferior, uh, inferior but uh, 3 o'clock is always anterior and 9 o'clock is always posterior, no matter if you're dealing with the right or the left shoulder. So that uh, if I say, uh, the, uh, this patient has a uh, labral tear from uh, 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock, you know the patient has an anterior inferior labral tear. And if I say the patient has a labral tear from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, you know the patient has a posterior inferior labral tear. 
So that way, in that way, we can communicate with each other about the extent of the labral tears. All right, let's talk about that Hill-Sachs lesion. Now, with an acute uh, anterior dislocation, there's nearly 100% chance in a young individual of having an acute Hill-Sachs lesion. That's an impaction a fracture or a contusion in that very high posterior lateral portion of the humeral head. And on the coronal image, on the coronal image, it's between the uh, 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock. And on the axial images, and on those coronal images, let me go on, on the coronal images is between 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock, but it's also the posterior two cuts, the posterior two cuts of the coronal image. And on the axial images, it's the upper two cuts. It's the upper two cuts that you see it, you see a contusion or a uh, impaction fracture in the posterior lateral superior humeral head. So the posterior uh, lateral uh, uh, defect on uh, coronal images between 11 and 1 o'clock on the posterior two cuts and on the axial images the upper two cuts. Now as you get as you pin down lower on the axial images you'll see that normal posterior groove at about the 3 o'clock position and that's not a Hill-Sachs lesion. Hill-Sachs lesions are always on the upper two cuts of axial uh, images. All right, let's talk about the classification of the various uh, anterior and inferior labral tears. All right, um, the most common, the most common uh, variant is the Bankart, the Bankart lesion. And the Bankart lesion, the anterior labrum, uh, the anterior labrum is knocked off, uh, the anterior inferior labrum is knocked off the glenoid and the scapular periosteum is broken, okay? So the classic Bankart, the anterior inferior labrum is knocked off and the uh, periosteum is broken. Now since the periosteum holds the labrum in place, the labrum now floats up and down in the shoulder. It no longer stays where it's supposed to be. So when you have a Bankart lesion, that piece of knocked off labrum will float up and down uh, the uh, shoulder. Now sometimes when that uh, piece of um, labrum, which is knocked off, um, is seen in the shoulder, since it floats up and down, it can uh, become oval. And uh, that knocked off labrum is sometimes called a GLOM, G-L-O-M, standing for gleno, uh, glenoid uh, labral oval mass. Uh, really, that's just the, the Bankart lesion. That's that knocked off uh, labrum. Now, when the soft tissue, when, in, when the, uh, the classic Bankart involves the uh, uh, cartilaginous, uh, the, the uh, fibrocartilage, of the uh, labrum, the uh, soft part of the uh, of the uh, labrum, that's called a classic Bankart uh, lesion or a soft Bankart. If the Bankart lesion involves a piece of the bone, that's called an osseous or a bony Bankart. Okay. Now that becomes important because if a little piece of bone is knocked off, a small piece of bone is knocked off, the surgeons can go in and just put a little screw in there and uh, uh, re-adhere the uh, the bone uh, the bone back and uh, won't have to do a labral repair 
but uh, that bone piece of the labrum uh, can be uh, sometimes the bony piece that's knocked off with a bank heart lesion can be quite large. And remember I said that it's, we're starting out with a very small surface area of the glenoid. Um, the glenoid has a very small surface area compared to the humeral head. When you knock off more than 25% of the volume of the glenoid, that's called um, uh, glenoid stock deficiency. And now there's no longer enough glenoid labrum for the shoulder to articulate with, okay? And then we have to do uh, some procedures to add more bone. The most common procedure done currently is the uh, Lartajet procedure, the Lartajet procedure, and I'll, I'll uh, discuss that uh, later. That's, that, that's called a, uh, a uh, bony uh, bank heart. Now, a second type of uh, labral tear, the second type of named labral tears, is the Perthes lesions, the Perthes lesion. And in the Perthes uh, lesion, uh, the labrum is knocked off, uh, the labrum is detached from the glenoid, but the periosteum's intact. And since the periosteum's intact, the labrum tends to stay in the same position. So when we put the patient in the MR scanner, we may not see the Perthes lesion, okay? The patient's uh, put in the shoulder uh, with his thumbs up in a uh, um, supine position, and the labrum may just float back to where it's supposed to be. So we may not see the Perthes lesion. So to bring out the Perthes lesion, we do a maneuver, and that's called the Aber uh, position, A-B-E-R, standing for abduction and external rotation. Okay, basically we take the patient's hand and put it behind the patient's head. That puts stress, that puts stress on that anterior inferior um, uh, glenohumeral ligament, pulling at that anterior inferior labrum and revealing a Perthes lesion. Now usually in the face of uh, aber positions are done uh, usually in the accompaniment of arthrography and I'll, I'll discuss arthrography uh, in more details but uh, Perthes, uh, when we're looking for a Perthes uh, lesion uh, usually it's uh, these uh, college or high-level uh, athletes and uh, uh, we'll uh, put them in that aber position. Now, the aber position takes about 10 more minutes because remember you have to take the patient out of the shoulder coil and put them, uh, put the patient's hand behind their head. Then you put what I call like a license plate coil over the patient's, over the patient's uh, shoulder. So um, you, you can see, uh, uh, see the structures. Now, the, uh, about 10% of patients who who are put in the aber position will dislocate. Uh, so if the patient tells you they have pain, then, uh, then uh, you need to uh, get them out of that, uh, uh, that uh, aber uh, position. Now the last, the last uh, named lesion, and remember these are radiology names, right? Bankard is a radiology name, although the surgeons occasionally use that. Uh, 
Perthes is a surgical as a radiology name and the last name is the ALPSA ALPSA which stands for anterior labral periosteal sleeve avulsion okay I, I personally think that's a ridiculous name it's just way too long but basically what the ALPSA lesion is it's it's a Perthes lesion the labrum is knocked off but it's adhered to the medial wall the medial wall of the glenoid all right that's called an alps lesion and you can get alpses uh, either chronically or, or acutely the alps lesion now the alps lesion has a very high incidence of dislocation so these patients tend to be dislocators and in general that's a very important point that when we have a young athlete with an acute labral tear the younger they are the more likely they are to be recurrent dislocators in fact patients between 18 and 21 years of age have a very high incidence of recurrent dislocation and as you get older as we get older and our shoulder ages the strength of the labrum transfer the strength of the shoulder transfers from the glenoid labrum to the rotator cuff so that if we're 45 years of age and we have an acute anterior dislocation now we're much more likely to have a partial a partial uh, rotator cuff tear uh, and a haggle humeral avulsion of the glenohumeral ligament than we are to have a, a labral tear labral tears are really uh, only important in those young athletes in which the uh, when we're very young, the labrum is very tightly adhered to that, to that glenoid labrum. Uh, once we get over age 45, the strength of the shoulder transfers to the rotator cuff, and the labrum becomes much, much, much uh, less important. Um, all right, so there's, there's, uh, there's also well, one other lesion I want to mention, just for completeness sake, uh, that's got a four letter another four letter name It's called the GLAD the glenolabral articular disruption and in this one the patient's shoulder is subluxed and there's a partial tear of the anterior inferior labrum uh, with a disruption of the articular cartilage right at that partial tear now that doesn't lead to recurrent dislocation it leads to um, pain and clicking uh, of the uh, patient's uh, shoulder and that's usually treated with debridement. The labral tears are treated surgically, uh, surgical uh, arthroscopic repair of the labral tears. So uh, in summary, we have, uh, when we have an acute anterior inferior dislocation in a young athlete, 100% chance of a Hill-Sachs lesion, that is a, either a, uh, a contusion or impaction fracture of that very high posterior lateral portion of the humeral head, we see that on the upper two cuts of the axial images, on the posterior two cuts of the coronal images, and about an 80% chance of an anterior inferior labral tear. The most common labral tear, the bank heart, in which the periosteum is torn, and the little piece of labrum floats up and down the shoulder. The perthes, in which the labrum is torn, but the periosteum is stripped but intact, holding the, la the labrum in place. And lastly, the alpsa, in which it's a perthes in which the which the labrum attaches to the medial wall uh, of the glenoid, um, uh, the uh, the alpsa lesion. And recall, all of these uh, uh, all of the labral tears uh, lead to recurrent dislocation, 
and the younger the patient is, the more likely they are to be a recurrent uh, dislocator. All right, that was the discussion of anterior labral tears. Let's talk about posterior labral tears. Well, posterior labral tears are associated with posterior uh, dislocations. Now, um, posterior dislocations, uh, in the past they've been, uh, if you read any of the books, they'll say the most common cause of a posterior dislocation is electrical shock or seizure. Uh, my experience, that's very uncommon. I've seen very, very few cases of patients with electrical shock and uh, uh, or a seizure with a posterior dislocation. I think that was prevalent back in the olden days, 30 years ago, when they used to do electric shock as a form of treatment for severe depression. Now they use kind of a micro, micro a circuit, uh, micro uh, ampule um, technique and don't really induce uh, seizures like they did back, back in the battle days. But the most common cause of a posterior dislocation is either in American football where the two teams are lined up against each other and then when the ball is hiked, the, there's trauma as the, as the uh, blocker tries to prevent the uh, opposite player from crossing the line and he's hit in the shoulder and the shoulder is knocked back posteriorly or in weightlifters. Uh, we have these young guys who try to build up their chest, the pecs in their chest, so they look good at the beach, and they're lifting these god-awful amount of weights, like 350 pounds. And what happens is they do what's called fatigues. They keep pushing until the, they can no longer lift the weight. So when the weight, they can no longer lift it, now all of a sudden you have 350 pounds hurling towards your face, your beautiful face. You don't want to mar that, so you push it upwards and that causes subluxation of the shoulder. So weightlifters uh, are the uh, patients uh, that, uh, that develop these posterior dislocations. And in the posterior dislocations, uh, it's, it's the opposite of an anterior dislocation. Instead of having a, a bony defect in the posterior um, lateral humeral head, we have a defect in the anterior medial humeral head. And instead of having a anterior inferior labral tear, we have a posterior inferior labral tear. And those are called, uh, and instead of having a reverse, instead of having a hill sax, we have a reverse hill sax. And instead of having a bank cart, we have a reverse bank cart. So with a posterior dislocation, we have a reverse hill sax and we have a reverse bank cart. Now, um, Remember my rule, one of my first rules is that when we're looking on those axial images for a labral tear, the anterior labrum should be as big as or bigger than the posterior labrum, uh, as dark as or darker than the posterior labrum, and no line to that posterior labrum. If we see a line to that posterior labrum, that's a posterior labral tear. Now, para, uh, any labral tear uh, can have paralabral cysts, okay? Paralabral cysts are highly suggestive of labral tears. In fact, if I see a paralabral cyst, I say there's a labral tear. If I don't see the labral tear, I'll say consistent with a sealed labral tear. There's still a labral tear, I just can't see it. So paralabral cysts are extremely useful when you're reading MR. Now that's different, of course, than um, pseudocysts. Pseudocysts 
uh, can occur anywhere in the shoulder and in general I tell the fellows they are not helpful for reading MRs because they're like the boy the cob wolf they can be in an area of of, uh, of trauma or tension but uh, they can also just be anywhere so they don't really help you but paralabral cysts are very useful because they point exactly to the labral tear and I've seen cases in young individuals even just a week out from a labral tear in which you'll see that the paralabral cysts outline the entire course of the labral tear so they're uh, very uh, very useful now another thing that topic I'd like to discuss is arthrography all right now what's the indication for our arthrography well I always kid it's either fellowship program or residency because you have somebody else doing it and there is a little bit of truth to that but by far and away the most common uh, reason we do shoulder arthrography is to evaluate labral tears all right labral tears now we also do them occasionally to evaluate undersurface uh, and full thickness rotator cuff tears and I'll talk about that in the rotator cuff lecture occasionally we'll do them for foreign bodies but the gradient echo image is so good we usually don't need to do that and we always give contrast uh, when we're looking for post-op rotator cuff tears or uh, uh, post-operative uh, labral repairs now what's the technique of arthrography well of course we want to use sterile technique and um, we want to use uh, a very small amount of uh, contrast it's a 1 to 200 dilution 1 to 200 dilution of gadolinium uh, in saline that's injected under sterile conditions uh, is, the fellows frequently use the the anterior uh, what's called the rotator uh, the rotator interval approach in which they just pick the anterior uh, superior humeral head I like to use the posterior approach so that way uh, you, you're sure that you're not uh, uh, interfering with uh, the biceps tendon or, or any of those structures now what are contraindications for arthrography well infection certainly if there's an infected joint or there's a skin infection you don't want to put a needle through that and uh, cause an infection into the shoulder uh, reflux sympathetic dystrophy um, that uh, can be exacerbated by uh, arthrography and uh, shouldn't be done uh, I use anticoagulation if somebody is on Coumadin or um, uh, one of those uh, heavy-duty anticoagulants uh, I don't uh, do arthrography for those patients uh, also if there's a history of allergy to contrast material uh, allergy to iodine is uh, relatively common uh, while al allergy to uh, gadolinium is more rare but there have been uh, a few cases of uh, true allergies to gadolinium now remember uh, you don't have to use contrast material you don't have to use gadolinium you don't have to put iodine in there you can just use saline and do T2 weighted images instead of T1 weighted images and uh, you can see quite well with uh, saline and T2 weighted images uh, they can really bring out the uh, labral tears now uh, avascular necrosis adjacent uh, to the uh, involved joint is probably a contraindication to doing arthrography and uh, if the patient has any uh, if the patient has an elevated uh, BUN or creatinine renal impairment then uh, you don't want to give gadolinium
All right, I wanted to address some uh, surgical treatments of uh, of labral tears. Uh, the first is uh, a repair of a bank heart uh, lesion. And usually what the surgeons do, this is arthroscopic surgery, is uh, they'll go in and draw, uh, drill three holes along the course of the anterior inferior labrum, the usual uh, region of the of the uh, uh, a soft bank heart, if there's a soft bank heart lesion. And then uh, they'll um, basically uh, use sutures uh, they'll put suture anchors into those holes and then they'll use sutures to pull the labrum um, back to the glenoid and uh, that has been uh, surprisingly to me surprisingly effective in that about 90% of patients uh, with um, uh, labral tears that are professional athletes can return to their sports after a labral repair so uh, that's that's uh, recent uh, history um, uh, Five or ten years ago, patients that uh, had labral tears that were professional athletes, uh, especially pitchers, uh, that was the end of their career. But now with these these new arthroscopic repairs, uh, patients are doing much, much uh, better than they were before. Another procedure I want to make you aware of is uh, with the um, Hill-Sachs lesion. And as I said, if, if you have a very large area, uh, the Hill-Sachs lesion is in that very high posterior uh, lateral uh, humeral head. If you have a very large uh, hill sacs lesion, that can uh, lead to engagement. That is, that 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 bony indentation can uh, engage or touch the anterior uh, inferior glenoid and then cause a dislocation. That's called an engaging hill sacs. It's relatively uncommon, but uh, certainly, uh, certainly uh, can uh, can occur. Now, uh, one of the uh, procedures um, the other problem with those the uh, bony uh, if the bank heart lesion involves the bone, if more than twenty five percent of the volume of the uh, glenoid is um, fractured off, there's no longer enough bone for the humeral head to articulate articulate with and that's called a glenoid bone stock deficiency. Uh, uh, recently there's a procedure that the orthopedic surgeons are doing uh, the, to correct um, that loss of the bony glenoid and that's called the Lardajet uh, procedure. Uh, the, uh, uh, in this procedure uh, there's a transfer of the uh, coracoid. The, uh, the uh, coracoid is transferred to the anterior inferior glenoid to rebuild the uh, arc of the uh, glenoid. The uh, steps usually is the coracoid tip is cut off approximately one to two centimeters from the conjoined tendon and the conjoined tendon is left intact on the coracoid and then the coracoid along with the conjoined tendon is uh, passed through a slit in the subscapularis and then fixed uh, with uh, screws uh, to the uh, glenoid. To me it doesn't have a very good cosmetic effect. Instead of being the rounded you see this big flop of bone next to the anterior inferior glenoid but uh, it's had very good surgical uh, and clinical uh, results. Uh, the patients have done uh, have done uh, very uh, 
very well uh, with that and that's called the Lerta uh, 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 jet uh, procedure. Now, um, another uh, um, topic I want to just briefly mention with you is on these uh, posterior uh, labral tears. Posterior labral tears. Uh, it uh, um, a very important factor in terms of development of posterior labral tears is the shape of that uh, glenoid. And in a fair number of individuals, there's a uh, loss of that, uh, there's an absence of that uh, posterior glenoid. Instead of having the normal shape that's uh, a shape like a wine glass, the uh, posterior glenoid will be deficient. And that's been called a posterior glenoid rim deficiency or glenoid dysplasia or glenoid hypoplasia. And uh, that hypoplasia uh, of the glenoid results in hypertrophy of the anterior, um, I'm sorry, the posterior, uh, the posterior uh, uh, labrum. So if the bone is deficient, what happens is our body puts more, uh, more uh, uh, labrum down there, more uh, fibrocartilage labrum. The trouble is that that fibrocartilage labrum that uh, replaces the bony labrum is weak and tends to tear. So uh, there's been a great, there's a grading system um, that goes from uh, mild, uh, mild uh, loss of that uh, uh, posterior glenoid to uh, severe loss of that posterior glenoid. Um, and uh, some studies have shown that severe glenoid uh, uh, deficiency uh, occurs in a, up, uh, up to about 14% of patients and about um, uh, up to 40% will have mild, um, mild uh, glenoid uh, hypoplasia or dysplasia. Um, this, this, as I said, this abnormal hypertrophy of the glenoid is prone to be prone to tear and those tears are prone to develop paralabral cysts. Now, some studies have, uh, have suggested that as many as 90% of uh, patients with posterior uh, labral tears have a glenoid uh, insufficiency, glenoid dysplasia, or glenoid hypoplasia. So it's a, it seems to be a very important factor in the development of uh, posterior labral tears. When there's loss, when there's a tear of that posterior labrum, the uh, humeral head is no longer uh, normally located in the center of the humeral head. It falls down posteriorly, and uh, that's a, that's a sign of a, a posterior uh, labral tear. That is, if you draw on axial images, you draw a line through the scapulum. It's called the scapular line. Um, then. The, the center of that line should go through the humeral head. If the humeral head is below that line, that suggests um, uh, a, a posterior uh, labral uh, tear.